Hello, my name is Israel. I've been involved in hip-hop since the 1980s as an artist, producer, radio show host, journalist, documentarian, magazine editor, hip-hop advocate, and pundit. Over the years, I've interviewed hundreds of interesting people in music, media, and more. Welcome to Sounds from the Underground, the podcast from Insomniac Magazine, where we learn from both those who reside below the surface and those who've breached it. All right, so I want to thank a special guest, extraordinary MC and producer, Blueprint, to the Insomniac Magazine podcast, Sounds from the Underground. Welcome, Blueprint. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here with us. And I want to congratulate you on your fifth full-length, Two-Headed Monster. And you are, actually, I think you're probably more than a two-headed monster. You're like a triple threat, a quadruple threat. You do everything. Yeah, like an eight-headed monster, really. Indeed. Indeed, no question, man. So let's talk a little bit about that, man. You've done a lot in this genre for quite some time. And there's so many folks, as you well know, that get in the game and drop off. And at this point, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, you've been in the game now for going on two decades. Is that right? My first record came out in 1999, our first tapes, and then we released them on CD in the year 2000. So, yeah, it's coming up on 20 years pretty soon. So what do you think about that, man? I mean, 20 years is a long time now. I'm saying it's an accomplishment to be in the game after all these years. What are your thoughts about that? First and foremost, I feel lucky. You know, I feel blessed, fortunate to to have been able to been, you know, able to do this for that long. You know, I've been putting out music since 99, 2000. And, you know, this became my full-time job in the year 2002. And that was 16 years ago. So 16 years as a full-time artist, you know, I wake up every day. I feel lucky fortunate, blessed. I don't feel jaded at all about the game. I just feel like I have a unique opportunity, you know, and that um, I just have to make the most of it. Because like you're saying, a lot of artists aren't aren't given this opportunity. Most of the artists that I start with, 99% of them, are not still doing it, especially locally. I look at it and I say, you know what? I started when all these guys started. We all work near the same talent level, but I did some things sep- different than them and I think that those things kind of helped me forge a very long uh, career to this day. Is it about being given the opportunity or is it about making things happen with what's in front of you? Uh, I think it's both. I think it's a combination of both, right? Um, you know, there's a saying, I think the saying goes, uh, you know, is it success when preparation meets opportunity mm-hmm. or something like that? Right. And so I think you have to have you have to be prepared, right? You have to, you have to sharpen your blade. You have to make sure that you are as sharp with your skill and as ready for any opportunity uh, as you are, as you can possibly be. Then the other part is being around when, when a ball bounces your way and, and not knowing when you take that, that it might work, it might not, you know? So for me, there's been, I mean, I've tried to always make sure I'm prepared, which is half of it. But then the other half was, certain things bounce my way that I just had no idea were going to bounce my way. So like an example of that would probably be like the, the soul position thing. Right. So like when I started working with RJD two at that time, he, he was a part of megahertz, but he was their DJ and they barely let him make any beats. You right. Know? 
he had only done one beat on order 12 inches to that point. And, uh, I met him and we just got along and really liked it. And then we started just like exchanging music and I found out he was making instrumental stuff. And so was I. And this was just as a producer. He hadn't even heard me rap yet. Lo and behold, you know, during that time he comes out, hears me rhyme. He's like, Hey, you know, I got a, I'm working on a single that I want to shop around. He shops around this single. Uh, one of the songs was final frontier and there's this label in Europe that was supposed to put it out. They ended up not putting it out, out the 12 inch. He ends up taking that same single and two other songs. This was all then by then Def Jux had just started, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he shops it to them. And the next thing you know, he gets signed his, you know, and, and that which in turn helped everything go. But at the time when we were making that music, I was probably working on five or six projects. I had records with Greenhouse. I had mm-hmm. records with Logic. I had uh, records with other artists that never even saw the light of day. A lot of music. We were doing the Orphanage records. We were mm-hmm. doing so much stuff. But I was just doing as much as possible, hoping that one of these things would stick. I remember getting a lot of, or at least some of those uh, 12 inches back in the day when I was doing radio. You know, you definitely were making your moves. And I remember Soul Position was definitely like that. I guess more so because at the time, Def Jock was kind of like the hot in the hip-hop label. So do you feel that they kind of helped propel you to that next level of kind of like a national notoriety? They did. And then at the same time, it was like a, it was a bunch of different things coming together, right? So like that part was working. But at the same time that that was going on, uh, Rhyme Sayers was starting to to become like a prominent thing, like True. atmosphere and idea and the Billies were coming up. And so we had, we were friends with them as well. And so right before like that whole, uh, 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 I think it was a compilation that came out on Def Jux that had the Final Frontier song on it came out. Mm-hmm. We were in talks with Rhyme Sayers. They were, they were interested in signing Soul Position as well. And that was just off of demos mm-hmm. that we had let them hear. And so because Atmosphere was being successful and they were expanding their label ready to take it to like a, a national level and get artists outside of Minneapolis, uh, we were positioned for that. So that, that helped as well. And then just... I think the internet in general helped because back then you had the forums, you had like the hip hop site, hip hop, infinity.com underground, hip hop.com, mm-hmm. uh, a like all these websites that were basically popped up just to cover underground hip hop. And Indeed. we were right there selling our music, you know, on the web. And I think that helped too. You know? Indeed. And, and I think another piece of it, and you feel free to correct me if, if I'm wrong, was that labels like Def Jucks, obviously helmed by LP and, and atmosphere with rhyme sayers, you know, they really locked down the, the, the physical distribution side. So they were able to elevate themselves, you know, outside of that very narrow space of like super independent to, to music that you could actually find in retail. So e- even though very obviously true. the internet was impactful, but at the same time, I think it, it, retail almost made it, even more legitimate. Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, that's when there was a point where, you know, they didn't have, at least Rhyme Shares didn't have a real distribution deal. Mm-hmm. And I remember Def Jux was always kind of with Caroline. And mm-hmm. so Def Jux definitely had, like, great distribution. Rhyme Shares at the beginning did not. They were really, like, grassroots about right. their distro. They had people who worked for the label who were selling copies directly to you know, dozens of stores across the country because they didn't have that one distributor. But yeah, that played a part because you knew like, okay, well, 
at least I know my mom and pop is going to have this store. Mm-hmm. If if one store in, in my city has this Def Jux record or this Rhyme Series record, and then eventually, like, the the the, the distributors like Fat Beats came mm-hmm. in, and, and then, you know, obviously, like, the, the Warner and all those things came in. But, yeah, all those things came in, um, started working to everybody's advantage. Indeed. So So one thing, you know, that I think you mentioned in your documentary was – and I'm not quite sure you used the word work ethic. You might have, but but essentially work ethic. And and that was kind of what I was thinking about, you know, with so many artists that have, and, and actually you did touch on this, so many artists that have amazing talent, but the work ethic isn't there. Talk to me a little bit about the work ethic and also what that sacrifice entails. Yeah, well, I've been... Uh... You know, I think one of the the good things that happened to me was that at the beginning of my career, you know, we had our own label waitlist, right? Mm-hmm. And we were, I was basically like running the label and producing the artists. And we had, I had a partner who was running the label with me, but that experience of being kind of behind the scenes really taught me a lot about what artists' work ethic is and how some of them were, are willing to go above and beyond to, to, to make it. And some of them will only go a certain distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and because they don't want to really, really take it there, there's a cap on their success. And so we would see this and I would always see it like, man, this is crazy. I didn't know at the time that I would eventually, you know, be in a different position, you know, be in that same position as they were with waitlist. Mm-hmm. I would be in that position with rhyme shares. Right. And so by the time I got signed to rhyme shares, I had been running a label from behind the scenes as an artist and I knew what I had to do in terms of the work ethic. And plus I was coming from, you know, working a job in corporate America mm-hmm. that I didn't like at all. So I was like, yo, if I get one chance for this, I'm not gonna, I mean, even if it means I don't even get to sleep four or five hours a night, I'm going to go as hard as possible until I can, you know, make my mark at this and be successful at this. But I saw a lot of artists who weren't doing that. People who started out ahead of me, who just, they just wanted to get by or they were just in it for, you know, the fame that comes along with mm-hmm. it or, or the free, the free drinks you get from the bar or the girls. Right. And I was like, yo, you know, I want, I want this thing. I want to be uh, self-employed. I want to be an artist. I want to do art full time. And those other things are just peripheral to me. The main thing is the commitment to the art. That's what I'm in it for. And that is what kind of reinforced uh, why I had to work really hard and why I, I kept doing that because I kept seeing people fall off. Mm-hmm. It was so, it's so many groups from Columbus that I know that were incredible, mm-hmm. but every member wasn't willing to do what we were willing to do. Right. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, running your own label where essentially the buck stops with you and then signing to a label where, I would imagine from everything that I, you know, have seen uh, uh, about you, you knew that it still stopped with you. In other words, you can't stop working because you're signed to a label. Talk, talk to me about that transition from being a label owner to to being an artist on a label, but obviously still needing to work to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said before, like once I got to the situation where I was on a label, nothing nothing really changed except that, you know, there were more opportunities for me because I was on the label. But like you said, I couldn't just sit back and think, 
they'll take care of that. They'll handle my social media. They'll get me shows. They'll, I'll just mails, you know, checks will just show up in my mail. I couldn't, I couldn't really do that. And so when I, because I knew that the artists who I was messing with did that and they were not successful when they did that. And so when, by the time I got there, it was like, even for like my record, my adventures and counterculture record that I did on Ryan shares, that record had, I think maybe six music videos. Mm-hmm. I paid for five of those. I went out and got five of those all by myself Right. and they paid for one of them. And I did that because I didn't want to sit around and, and assume that it was their responsibility to tell me how to promote my record or to choose, you know, uh, how it should be promoted or this is a single. So I said, you know what? No, if this is what I think is the, the first single, which ended up being radio inactive, mm-hmm. um, because there, we weren't really in agreement on what the first single could be because the record was really, you know, kind of diverse. So I was like, you know what? This is what I think the first single should be. So I'm going to go and get a, a music video done for it. And we dropped that and it really, really hit, you know. And, you know, they did their part with the one that they committed to doing. But had I have sat there, I would not have been able to have a campaign for that record that lasted a whole year and tour as much as I did and get, you know, the momentum that I did. It was because I I never assumed that they were going to do a bunch of stuff for me. I assumed that, hey, we're giving you a shot. You know what you got to do. You know you got to go out here. And and, and the, the the good thing is that Rhyme Sayers was built on that grassroots mm-hmm. approach. Right. So I, if I would have been on another label, it might not have worked that way. I might have had different assumptions. But being on Rhyme Sayers, I knew just by how hard atmosphere grinded that there was no way I was going to sit at home and just get a check for being dope. Indeed. And, and if you don't mind, talk to me a little bit about the pros and cons, because it's, it's never nirvana. It's never a perfect scenario. Obviously, you know, we've all heard horror stories, so that doesn't have to be a horror story. But what's the good and the bad of being an artist signed to a label, especially a label that knows what they're doing? As you mentioned, they had that that grassroots momentum. They really had a strong tie to the hip hop community. Um, what, what would you say was, were some of the good things and the bad things? Not necessarily about the label, but about the scenario, about being an artist on a label. Uh, well, I think one thing is, I mean, the good is obviously that, like, you know, when I talk about a label like Rhyme Sayers, I say, you know, Rhyme Sayers, they're not just like somebody running it out of their, you know, home office anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, they have a huge retail space. They got a, an office building with, you know, a, a gang of space and a gang of employees. Mm-hmm. And the thing about them is that one of the pros is that once they decide to do something, once they decide that they're going to put all of that energy towards a project or something, that momentum is very difficult to create any other way. It's very powerful. And, and you see that. You know, the, the con of that is that because they're so big, because they have employees, because they have, you know, distribution through Warner, mm-hmm. because they're bigger, they're not as nimble. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be nimble when you're big, right? Right. It's like if you tell an elephant to knock down a wall, you can't tell him to stop after he starts running. Mm-hmm. He's going to knock that wall down, whereas something that's smaller can stop on a dime, can turn, can change directions. If you say, you know, let's do something different. That machine, that's just a consequence of being bigger. You have to go a hundred percent into something. And, and, and in that, 
you know, there's going to be more investment. It's going to cost more money to get things done, but things will be done bigger. So as an artist, you just have to go into it knowing like, okay, this is not something where they're just going to throw a record out there. Mm-hmm. There's not really, you know, they're going to go 2000% or they're not at all because they have something at stake. You right. know, they have a relationship with their distributor at stake. So that's one thing that's like a pro and a con of it. For me, I had a different situation with Rhyme Shares where it was like, because I came up with those guys, I didn't have like the traditional um, X amount of record record deal. Right. I was the entire time I was putting out records on Rhyme Stairs, I was able to come and go as I pleased, which is how I was able to still release music on waitlist during that time. It was more that if I had a project I thought fit them, I would pitch it to them. And if they wanted it, they would say, yeah, we want to, we want to rock with this. But it was nothing where it was like, oh, you can't uh, release this on your thing. You can't do this thing with there. So I had a different situation. So for me, it was a lot of, it was a lot of plus um, because I had the ability to come and go as I pleased versus the average artist deal, which is, Hey, we got you locked in for X amount of years mm-hmm. or X amount of albums. And in that, you know, you can't do anything. And for me, you know, like, like we talked about earlier, I like to make production albums. I like to produce records for other cats. I might do a, a blueprint versus Funkadelic or, or versus who just things I want to do creatively. Those weird things. Um, I needed to have a separate kind of platform for that. Mm-hmm. And Indeed. they allowed me to do, they let, they allowed me to do that based on how our working relationship was structured. Um, for a lot of artists, I mean, I would say that, you know, the, the, the con of a label is that, you know, you might not be able to move as impulsively as you may want to, because it's not just about what you're feeling right then and there. It's about what makes business sense. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, because I had ran a label, I understood that, you know, from day one, I was never one of those artists who was mad at the people running a label, um, if they didn't do something I wanted or if they didn't like something I liked or if they felt like, you know what, that's cool, but this other one will appeal to more people. I never tripped on that because I was, I understood that if my records didn't make money, then they didn't make sense to put out. Right. And, and those are the conversations that are very difficult for a lot of artists mm-hmm. who didn't have the similar background that I did to have. Indeed. So, so let's talk a little bit about your decision to move back in the, wholly independent space meaning that you're you're running your own record label and the projects that you're putting out are coming out through waitlist what was the decision process to go back to that scenario uh it was it was a lot of stuff that really didn't have a lot to do with music some of it was more just there was a point where i looked at my catalog and i thought you know i've been releasing music for at that point i think i had been releasing music for you know 12 years, 10 to 12 years. And for me, I was like, you know what? I technically only have one record that is mine. Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't have a lot of solo records. You know, technically I had only had the 1988 record and Adventures of Counterculture record at that point. Mm -hmm. I had other records that were in the works, but when you start thinking about being an artist, sometimes that that looms over your head. Like, what do you really own of, of your thing? Do you want to have a career where you don't even have a single record that's yours? You know, 
that was one factor. Another factor was, as we talked about earlier, wanting to be nimble. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be able to say, okay, I made this record. I finished it in January. Okay, I want to put it out in May and know that there's nothing coming in between me and there. There's, I, there's, there's no other artist who's dropping in, so I don't have to move around that day. There's no, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't have to mold my plan around everything. I can be as nimble as possible. Right. And, you know, I wanted to take a chance and, you know, we talked about it and and it was like, you know what, I think I want to take a chance and see what I could do. And that was really the respect to architect thing. It was more like, Hey, I want to take a chance. I want to see if I've learned enough, uh, all these years of, you know, being an artist on this label, doing it myself for other artists. And I don't want to see if I know enough, if I can create enough, uh, opportunity and interest to, to not need uh, a traditional label support. Right. At this time, do you have partnerships with other entities such as distribution or at least physical distribution, not digital distribution, because that's kind of a given? I mean, yeah, because I do have the, the digital distribution through Orchard. Physical distribution, that's something that I had changed my entire perspective on as an artist over the years. So mm-hmm. when I was when we were putting out records, and let's say, 2002 to 2008 one issue we had with physical distribution was that we continually saw that our records would sell through and we wouldn't get paid for mm-hmm. but these but these same distributors would be asking us for more and more records and so we had an issue like well wait a minute if you don't have any more records left then you owe us something you just mm-hmm. can't keep asking for more and more records and this was a reoccurring theme and, you know, we saw distributors that we were, we had great relationships with. They didn't want to be just distributors. They wanted to be labels. Mm-hmm. And so they would form labels and they would take the money that they made selling our records mm-hmm. and dump it into their artists. Mm-hmm. And so I thought to myself, you know, when you go through that and then you start seeing the changing landscape of, of uh, retail in music. So right around 2007, 2008, 2009, you know, if you remember, that was right around when all like the big, uh, chain stores started closing. Mm-hmm. And so you have this going on at the same time. And so I'm thinking, well, if I give my record to a distributor at this point, it could sell through. I might not see my money. I know that my fans could buy it a little easier if they chose to walk in stores. But at that time, I think I had started kind of looking into the, the direct to consumer model. Mm-hmm. And so I started working heavily on my website then started really establishing a rapport directly with my fans. And that's when I did like the blueprint who record and then the funkadelic record. Those were basically for me to test out the direct to consumer relationship and see if I needed a distributor. Like, mm-hmm. could I just make, you know, 500 or a thousand of a project and sell it directly to my fans and still get, you know, reach and impact and make back the money. And I saw that I could. Mm-hmm. And from that point forward, so, so right around like 2013, 2014, distributors ask me all the time, like from Fabby's, Hey, we want to carry your records, we want to carry your records, but I don't sell my records to them because the markup ain't mm-hmm. in my favor. So if I'm an independent artist right now and I got a thousand copies of my record, they want to buy them for $8 a record. Mm-hmm. Right. So if it costs me $4 a record or $3 a record, I'm making at most five bucks. If I sell that same record directly to my fans, I can sell it for 20 and I make $16 on that. 
And the, not not to so mention I, that the terms you you know you're always waiting on that uh, net whatever sixty ninety whatever yeah it is. net thirty sixty right right and 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 I didn't like that I said well you know what well, why am I doing this and and I it was just you know as you see now it's like we're in the 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 boutique era of music mm-hmm. not just in terms of you know the labels but in terms of people's tastes people go people are into specific little genres of music. And I saw that. I said, well, you know what? I think the future is going to be somewhere where I don't need physical distribution of a record because, A, I can sell it directly on my website, and B, because I still have the ability to tour. Mm-hmm. So because I tour and I can do 60 to 70 city tours, I am the distribution. Indeed. And, you know, and, no, I, yeah. and there's no better retail space than that merch table. Right, exactly. So it's like I'm getting paid. I don't have nobody making me wait 30 days, 90 days, and then tell me that, hey, well, you know, uh, it's, it's tough right now. Just send us 200 more records, and we'll pay you on this one, and you know, not the first 200 you said. Mm-hmm. It's like, nah, man. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get paid on every one of these, and I'll and the people know now to come to the shows and get it. The economics around the music industry for an artist, and feel free to correct me if if I'm wrong or or you want to add something, but almost historically has really been on the side of touring. And and obviously now in an environment where, you know, we can make product available directly to the fan without the middleman being the label. Um, is it still touring that really is the, the bread and butter or is the direct to fan sales really competing with that now? Uh, I think it's actually split. I think, I don't, I don't think it's, uh, for me, you know, I'm a little different than other people because I think I, I, you know, I, I focus very heavily on, you know, like my web presence, you know, and, and, and forming those relationships, everything Mm -hmm. from blogging to, so I think for me, yeah, like selling directly to fans, it's probably equal with my touring thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like selling directly to fans is what allows me to not tour sometimes. Like, so this tour that I'm going on this summer is my first full tour in three years. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of my friends, you know, we joke and they say, look, man, there's no way I could take three years off touring mm-hmm. because they don't have that direct thing that I had that allows me to, 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 to sail directly and not have to be on the road 24 seven. Right. But so for, so for me, it might be split evenly between those two things, like keeping, I can keep releasing things directly to my, you know, my, my hardcore fans instead of feeling like I got to get out there and tour every three months for, you know, I'm not trying to tour 200 days a year if I don't necessarily have to. And the, and beyond the fact that obviously it's, I would imagine that it is tiresome to be on the road nonstop. Talk to me a little bit about the grind of putting together those shows. Are you working specifically with agents or are you doing a lot of the booking on your own? How are you making those things happen? Because I was looking at your tour schedule coming up and it's it's pretty hardy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a booking agent now. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have one. There were years where I didn't have a booking agent and those years actually kind of helped because that's when I really learned how to book and how to like, so I would go on these big rhyme series tours. And at the time I had like the same, we all had the same booking agent, Mm -hmm. but I would, because I was just, you know, doing support on those tours, I would kind of meet people from those cities all the time 
who did who either had weekly events or through events and, and promoted shows in smaller uh, rooms and stuff. So I always kept in contact with all those people. And then eventually I ended up parting ways with that booking agent. Oh, they got bought by somebody bigger. And then I didn't technically have an agent, you know, not a personal one, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to go back to booking myself. So I started booking myself using all the contacts I had made over the years. And then eventually I bumped into my agent who was doing booking as well. And so um, we kind of talked about it and I just told him what my philosophy was, and what I really wanted to build. And I was like, look, you know, I want to, I want to build something where I can go out anytime I want to and play, you know, two to three markets in any state. I want to be able to play the smaller markets. I don't want to feel like I'm relying on, you know, New York, LA, uh, Chicago to have a, you know, a shot at touring. I, I know that I've been all these other places and I know I can do well there. So let's focus on building that up, building something that we can, uh, we can roll out whenever we want to. And so I have, I've had a booking agent since 2013, I mm-hmm. think. And, uh, you know, we've done four or five tours together and it's, uh, it, it, it's well, it goes really well, man. And he and I have the same philosophy, you know, um, everything, everything that I bring to the table, you know, he brings his thing to the table and we kind of really collaborate on what we're trying to, trying to, trying to do. And he knows I'm trying to build as an artist. So it works really well, you know, just having a, someone there to where I can kind of focus on the art. I can focus on just like being good on stage instead of, you know, negotiating with people about shows like right. I used to have to. Right. And I, I mentioned earlier, you know, radio, you know, once upon a time, it, it, if we're talking about quote unquote, underground hip-hop you know uh radio on the college level obviously later on satellite radio and community radio public radio uh was a big deal for independent hip-hop artists today obviously there's so many platforms uh where music could be streamed is it still just promotional or, or are you seeing significant revenue from streaming platforms or is it still just like radio is it just a promotional vehicle to get your music out there i i think anything from radio to streaming uh overall i would say that's a promotional thing until you get to a certain level mm-hmm. right so i think for really large artists mm-hmm. they're the ones and for major labels i think they're the ones who are really winning when it comes to streaming Right. I don't get the impression talking to any independent artists uh, that like, okay, streaming is a financial win for us. Um, I think some artists don't know, like a lot of newer artists, they never existed at a time when there were multiple revenue streams that weren't streaming. Mm -hmm. So to them, they may say, oh, I make a couple bucks off streaming. That's just what my worth is. That's the value of my music now. Mm -hmm. Whereas us, since we've been doing it longer, we kind of know like this isn't as equitable as everything else was in the past. So I have to be very careful about it, but my, my stance on streaming is changing a little because I'm starting to see that, you know, you, you can't fight something that's coming anyway. Mm-hmm. You can fight it to an extent, but I can sit around and say, you know what? Streaming is, is robbing us. So I'm not going to put my stuff on those platforms, Right. but that I don't think, I don't think that really solves the problem. I think that really makes it worse, mm-hmm. you know? Um, because now you're not where people listen to music at, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what I have realized I've had to do is say, okay, well, streaming, the people who are going to stream, are going to stream just like those who are going to, you know, buy a, a physical product are going to 
do that. But what I have to focus on now is to say, okay, well, how can you make the physical side of things more interesting mm-hmm. to, to where people are not just to where it doesn't end there, right? You can't just say, well, my music's on Spotify. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have a t-shirt, you don't have any physical product, you don't have anything. So like from books to DVDs, to slip mats, to t-shirts, to, you know, like these are all the things that, you know, colored vinyl, I think the streaming has to be looked at as a way to funnel people, to create fans who are willing to buy your other things. I don't think an independent artist will make enough off of streaming to make a, a living. Right. I don't, I don't know if that's possible. Right. But I think that if you're focused on, okay, this is just one thing that creates awareness, like you're saying, like radio does. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, independent artists weren't getting rich off radio. It was like you're saying, college and community sure. radio was giving mm-hmm. us fire. They mm-hmm. didn't have the money. So, but they helped us tremendously. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's the same thing with streaming. If we switch the way we frame it and make sure that we have something at the end, whether it's, okay, I have this really detailed, well-thought-out physical product, or I have this amazing live show that hearing my music and becoming a fan will drive you to, then I think streaming can work in our favor. And, and in many ways, obviously, you're, you're a perfect example of, of the idea that it is more than just, you know, one product. You know, in many ways, you know, you are making a lot of products available beyond just a performance, beyond just streaming. You have physical product. You mentioned books. You have a documentary, you have a podcast. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, would you say that a, a big part of the future of independent hip hop in many ways is kind of like expanding that brand into all of these other products, both physical and digital? Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's what it's going to be because you never know what's going to happen with technology to where you just don't know if you can be dependent upon certain things or certain platforms being there. You know, so for me, I think it's very important to have other things, be able to create interest in other ways. Um, the documentary, it's a, it's something that I never thought I would do 10 years ago, mm-hmm. but it's something that I think when people see it, it gives them a better understanding of me as an artist. And I think that only helps me in the long term. I think the same thing is true for my books, even though everybody who listens to music doesn't really read books like that you know Mm -hmm. some people are just music fans they like to hear their information as opposed to reading it Mm -hmm. but for those who are into reading seeing that i have a book and reading one of my books they love it because they finally get to see and have questions answered that they've had for a long time and And that just creates a deeper connection right And, and in many ways i would imagine that each of these endeavors are almost promotions for something else so obviously you know if you watch the movie in many ways that's going to promote the album king no crown if you listen to the album vice versa if you listen to the podcast you're going to know that you're going on tour etc etc exactly exactly that's exactly what it does talk to me if you don't mind about marketing What, what would you say are some of the more interesting marketing uh, endeavors that you've participated in, you know, I mean, everybody says social media, but maybe something more specific that you really say that you really saw pay off right now. I'd say the thing I, I think is paying off the most would be the podcast. Mm-hmm. I looked at it like, um, I read a book once 
and it talked about uh, the soap opera industry. And it was basically making a point that soap operas were created by Procter and Gamble mm-hmm. to sell their products, which is the opposite of what people think when they watch soap operas. When they watch soap operas, they think it was created by some movie studio to just create entertainment for you. But instead, the people who who wanted to sell a product decided, well, what's the best way to reach these people? Well, what do they do? Well, they're into these things and these types of stories. So let's just create some programming that they like. And then during the commercials for that programming, we'll promote our products. That Learning that is what made me really see the value in creating a podcast and, and how it can be a marketing tool, even though it doesn't even look like a marketing tool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because cause what we do, we, we talk about our story and we tell, you know, we, we share what we know about the industry and try to help people become better artists on a podcast. But in turn, that opens us up to a whole new demographic of people who might not have otherwise listened to us. Or if they were fans, they might have been casual fans. But then they listen to the podcast and it helps them. It uh, inspires them, teaches them to do something that maybe they didn't think they could do. And then next thing you know, we have a, a relationship with them. And because we have a better relationship with them, they're more likely to support us in our musical endeavors. Indeed, no question about that. Let's let's talk for a moment about, I don't know, it's almost, I look at it almost like a paradox. You know, I mentioned earlier, quote unquote, underground hip hop, which, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a negative uh, uh, viewpoint of that terminology, except that for so long, that style of hip hop, which in many ways is authentic hip hop, has kind of taken on this alternative kind of category from everything else. I mean, as somebody that makes authentic, impactful, intelligent hip hop what's your thought on that the 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 real if you will essence of what we know hip hop to be to kind of be pushed in this category that's you know not quite the real thing what what are your thoughts on that i don't know if it's avoidable right because on one hand we kind of had to set ourselves apart at the beginning right to say look we're not like this shit over there mm-hmm. we're not like them when you come over here, you're going to get this, you're going to get that, you're going to get that. And we're not going to celebrate none of that stuff that they're doing over there. We're going to you know, uphold these values and these tenets. I think we had to do it at the beginning to make sure that we weren't seen in the same light as all that other stuff, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think the consequence of it is, like you're saying, now people are like, they're forgetting that, yo, this is the essence of what it is, though. Like, this is not some weird you know mm-hmm. offshoot of hip-hop this mm-hmm. is actually the, the the like that shit is the weird offshoot of hip-hop mm-hmm. not this mm-hmm. and it's weird how over time because we have, have set ourselves apart now what's popular has changed and mother and they're looking at us like well y'all y'all are on some other shit and we're just like no y'all are really on some other shit we're keeping it true to the to the to the ethics of the shit Y'all are just coming out of left field with whatever you think is hot right now. It it might be the context of history being missing from a lot of people's experience, you know, and what they think hip hop yeah. is. Because, 
you know, as you were talking, it was interesting, you know, someone as someone that's been around for a while, you know, I get what you're saying that the positioning of hip hop, you know, this underground hip hop uh, was done so to kind of differentiate it from, you know, all the jiggy stuff. But in, right. in reality, you know, the 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 tenets, as you said, you know, was something that were present in the beginning back in the golden mm-hmm. era of hip hop. So it's kind of an interesting thing. And and when you framed it that way, I think in many ways, the problem might be that the context of history is missing from so many people's idea about what hip hop is. What do you think? What do you think we could do to help fix that? Uh, well, I mean, I think you got to get the. Uh, I think the biggest problem with that that I observe is that there's a total disrespect for uh, hip hop when it, when you start talking about like the hip hop press on a large scale mm-hmm. you know so like when you start talking about um so a perfect example i heard the other day there was a there was a, a headline i think on complex.com and it, it said something to the effect of i can't remember who the, the, the little mumble rap rapper was mm-hmm. mumble rapper such and such has 10 times more streams than shook ones by mob deep mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, and that was their headline, basically, to suggest that, that mm-hmm. his record mattered more right. than Shook Ones by Mob Deep, because it has more streaming. Besides the fact that streaming didn't even exist when Mob Deep's record first came out. You Indeed. Know? And so, so things like that, where you're, sub, you're almost you're subconsciously insulting the, 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 the history of hip-hop to prove that something that just came out is just as relevant. And I see that a lot. I see like there's very little celebration or uh, true respect given to older established artists because, you know, the essence of a lot of these these websites now is that they're getting paid to try to tell you what's next. And if they can't tell you what's next, then they can't sell ads. And if they can't sell ads, then they're not even going to cover hip hop. But they just do that. And, but in, in doing so, chasing what's next or what's hot, they disrespect everything that has to do with the culture and the history of the art form. And, and that's the cost of being in this what's hot right now uh, market. Mm-hmm. That's all they want to talk about. And, and I think that when we do that, history is being lost. Significance is being lost. None of these faces should ever publish an article like that that sounds mm-hmm. like something a 21-year-old would write. Like, who's at the top of these organizations to mm-hmm. where you don't they don't slap that writer and say wait a minute dude you don't compare these two artists ever mm-hmm, you know what i mean mm-hmm. you should never do that you, first of all and then second of all these are completely different times mm-hmm. my beep sold you know five million more records than this guy you're you're comparing him to so is it really a comparison you know what i mean it's like you shouldn't even be but because their thing is to kind of uh i don't know like subvert this fucking the history of this mm-hmm. shit so that they can look relevant they automatically destroy the history by just writing it about hip hop the way that they do. Indeed, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I think the the analogy that I use is that in many ways it's kind of like you know the car accident syndrome. You know, you you drive by a car accident. No one is a fan of car accidents. Nobody wants to be in a car accident. But when you drive by one, you know, as bad or maybe even as grisly as it might be. You know, you look, it, it's something to look at. And, and in many ways, I think a lot of hip hop today 
and the headlines that you're talking about, the videos, the streams, is something to look at. It doesn't necessarily mean, I don't think, that there's a true connection and a bond between the person that's looking at it and the the the, the music. It's something to look at. It's something that in some cases is shocking or it's over the top or, you know, you got to show people, wow, look at it, this guy's crazy. As opposed to back in the day when you bought Shook Ones, you had to come out the pocket and buy that product. And it doesn't take yes. any money for you to click that button or to share that link. Yeah, I agree. Very little investment. And, and you know, you see the same thing. Like, these, these media outlets, the larger media outlets, they don't really have any skin in the game when it comes to hip-hop. They don't have anything to lose by covering hip-hop in a, the disrespectful way that they do because they're not invested into the culture. True. They just come in at the tail end of it after everyone else has built up, you know, this thing for years. They just come in and say, okay, we're just a large media conglomerate. We got all this money from all these other places. We're just here to, you know, to, to spread gossip and drama, and that's hip-hop now. And, and I like the word you used. Obviously, it is about you know, culture versus maybe just music, right? Music doesn't always have yeah. culture behind it, but clearly there is still hip-hop that is entrenched in the culture. Speaking of that, your new album, Two-Headed Monster, is full of culture. I mean, not only do you have amazing production, you have uh, incredible lyricism. You have guest stars that are iconic. Um, talk to me a little bit about that project and what you were trying to do differently with this album versus some of your previous releases. Uh, well, well, first, thanks. Thanks for the kind words, man. I appreciate that. Um, when I did the record, that's what I was going for. I felt like, you know, there's sometimes we forget like how effective it can be to just really, really understand like, like loops and melody and scratches and these elements, these tenants that were a part of like the classic records, you know, that, that built hip hop. And so I, I will always, even though I have times where I'll do some avant-garde shit, I wanted to make sure that like on this record, I just reined it back in and just was really, really effective with the writing, really, really effective with the production to where as soon as a beat come on, people were just like, oh, wow, that hits me immediately. Um, with, the, with the, you know, as far as like rhyming, I wanted to step it up. I didn't want it to be something where, you know, I'm just there on a beat because I think we're in an era right now where it's cool to look like you're not trying. And I didn't want to just look like a rapper who's not trying with a good beat who's just, you know, there. And I'm like, nah, man, I respect writing and emceeing to the point to where I want people to pick this up and this kind of evokes that feeling of classic music, you know, immediately like, Oh, this immediately feels like this is some hip hop. This is it. Um, that's what I wanted to evoke in people, you know, and I wanted to prove, you know, as, as always, you know, I've, I've always been, you know, doing beats as well, but I just wanted to kind of do something that kind of maybe paid some homage to some of the people that like were, were, were my favorites and like the records, that that I liked a lot, which is like, you know, certain large professor records, certain mm-hmm. DITC records, and, and just sonically, those are some of the things I kind of wanted to, to to evoke and touch on. Indeed. Well, you certainly accomplished that, man. I mean, it's definitely entrenched, as I mentioned, in authenticity, and you could feel 
the love of hip hop, you know, and hip hop culture in the record. So I definitely want to, you know, give you props for that. And and I'm I'm looking at the clock right now. It looks like we've been on the phone almost an hour. I want to respect your time. I think we might have to do a part two so, in the near future if yeah. that's cool with you. <laughs> Yo, I'm definitely down, man. Just let me know. Before we break, tell us what to look forward to. Obviously, you're doing a multi-city tour. What other things could folks look out for from Blueprint? Yeah, uh, well, I think the next thing is just like you're saying, we leave for tour next weekend, and that's pretty much like a 60-city tour throughout the United States. We've got a couple of Canada dates, so my, you know, my headlining tour, me and just my DJ, Detox. And uh, that's going to be running from uh, the end of this month through, I think, August 8th. Um, after that, I mean, during that time, we probably will have another couple of music videos that will be released. And, uh, you know, I'm just going hard on this record, trying to really, really get out there and get in front of people and, uh, you know, just take it to the road, to the people who, who really are into this kind of stuff that we do, man. So that's the next thing. And the rest of this year, I don't really know. I probably will have another book coming out this year. Um, that's what I'm trying to finish. Maybe like this winter, I'll have another book released. And, uh, you know, that's really it for right now. Well, that's more than enough, man. That's a lot. That's saying a lot. So I want to thank you once again, man. I want to encourage everybody to go out there and make sure to check out the Two-Headed Monster Blueprint doing his thing, rocking it in hip-hop, a true icon of the culture, and we'll be seeing you on the road, man. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. For sure, man. Appreciate you having me. You got it, man.